Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your six-foot rabbits of research. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. That makes it sound like we're cosplaying Watership Down. <laughs> No, that, that's possibly as frightening and unsettling as the movie we're going to discuss today. It's a tale as old as time, folks. It's a story of boy meets girl. Boy gradually realizes he exists in a tangent universe created by a rupture in the space-time continuum after he sleepwalks out of his bedroom just before a giant jet engine falls out of the sky and crashes into his room. Boy is haunted by a terrifying six-foot-tall rabbit who encourages him to commit acts of violence. Girl gets run over by a car, driven by a man dressed up as the aforementioned six-foot rabbit, and boy sacrifices himself to set the universe back on its proper timeline, thus saving the world. Did I miss anything? No, I think that was how Joseph Campbell outlined it, too. (laughs) We could only be talking about Donnie Darko. Not an easy movie to explain, that's for damn sure. (laughs) But its inscrutability made it an immortal classic in college dorm rooms, at least back in my time. You can watch it again and again and again and get something new from it, and yet still never completely figure it out. It examines the concept of fate, time travel, and the very nature of the universe. And just like all of those things, it's a mystery that you can never truly solve. Some of it seems a little overwrought and self-consciously deep, but if it hits you at the right time in your life, it sticks with you. The movie's composer, Michael Andrews, likened the movie to, quote, everybody's first deep thought, which I just thought was the most perfect way to encapsulate what this movie means to me and so many people. What do you think, Haga? What were your experiences with Donnie Darko? Oh, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's exactly about when you saw it. If you saw it, like, beyond the age of 21, it's you're just going to be like, what is this shit? Like, I don't, (laughs) I, I, it is, it's also like another perfect encapsulation of what I like to call the first bong rip idea. Um, (laughs) That's right, yes. A a moment of inspiration that should be taken back to the board and never was. (laughs) Um, But yeah, 
I love this movie, dude. It's so good. I saw, you know, we had movie club in high school, and, and this was one of the movies that we watched in there. Um, they let you watch this in. Dude, they let us watch Requiem school. for a Dream. Good God. Yeah, that well, was I a mean, I big applaud, or pulp, I can't tell by fiction, applaud or. Pulp Fiction, too. Yeah. It was not a well supervised club, <laughs> but <laughs> it's sure. Saw a lot of cool shit you know wow yeah it's great i mean it's so good it's it like plays into every part of being a teenager like uh nascent clinical depression messiah (laughs) complex um (laughs) you know yeah it's perfect i i it is it is and it's like lightning strikes once situation it's not like boogie nights or like a promising new voice in cinema it's like he had one thing and he knocked it out of the park and then yeah, I don't Sadly. know. He's still very young. He's not even fifty yet. So Richard Kelly, the writer and director of this movie, still got time. Yeah, yeah. I, I again, like you, I came across this movie in probably the most stereotypically early two thousands way possible. I, I was turned on to it by my my one cool friend, who was really valiantly trying to get me to consume media that I couldn't find on Nick at Night or Oldies 103.3, or American Movie <laughs> Classics. And he was the guy who wore skinny jeans and earrings and eyeliner and occasionally dyed his hair and taught me, or at least tried to teach me about the difference between emo and screamo. And he took me to my very first non-boomer rock show, the Worcester Palladium, to see the Alkaline Trio, Saves the Day, and Taking Back Sunday. <laughs> and it was at this show that I was offered Special K by a guy, and I thought he was talking about the cereal. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, my friend, he'd already blown my mind with fear and loathing in Las Vegas. So for our next movie night, he busted out Donnie Darko. And as soon as it was over, I think I told him to rewind it and start it again because there was just so much happening that I felt like I needed a recap. And like you said, it's the perfect movie for those entering adolescence, partially because it's basically a warped version of those John Hughes teen romance movies with an added dose of, you know, psychological thriller, sci-fi, even a little bit of superhero thrown in for good measure. And the other thing is that it treats the really troubled teenage characters with a degree of respect that I feel like is rare for a Hollywood movie. It really does. He has a lot of love for them. It treats them with a lot of a lot of dignity and a lot of agency and and it's never punching down um, no yeah which is which is really what's i think it part of its most of its enduring appeal yeah he's just he's the perfect teenage character he's just flooded with these intense emotions he's alienated he's angry he's railing against conformity but he's scared and lonely and sad but romantic and determined. He's got every emotion, every quality, which is what being a teenager is, I guess. This is tornado of feelings. And he's Jesus. And he's Jesus, that's right. Anyway, without further ado, listen on to learn all the ways that rookie director Richard Kelly beat the hellish odds to make his incredibly ambitious feature film debut, why Jason Schwartzman was very nearly the title character, and how this movie quite literally couldn't have happened without Drew Barrymore, the true MVP of this production. You'll also find out the song they wanted to use for the sparkle motion dance sequence, Learn why Gary Jewell's haunting Mad World cover was a last-minute addition, and why Donnie Darko is real-life neighbors with Ferris Bueller. We got a lot to cover, so let's get into it. Here's everything you didn't know about Donnie Darko. The spirit of youthful inquisitiveness and adolescent growing pains is strong in Donnie Darko because it was made by a guy who wasn't far off from being a teenager himself. 
Writer-director Richard Kelly was fresh out of USC film school in 1998 when he found himself, quote, in a panic about how to build a career in the movie industry. By day, he was working as an assistant at a post-production facility for, I believe, music videos, earning $6 an hour for, as he'd later say, serving cappuccinos and making cheese and cracker plates for Madonna, Puff Daddy, and Jennifer Lopez. Uh, This was not his ultimate aim, so when he was just 23 years old, he began writing what would become his first feature film script, Donnie Darko. He later told The Hollywood Reporter, I remember writing Donnie Darko back in October 1998. That's part of the reason why it's set at Halloween. It's like I was looking back at a decade or so in my life. Donnie's a little older than I would have been in 1988, but I was basically writing a nostalgia fantasy about my adolescence. And the heady sci-fi elements were indeed part of his upbringing. Richard Kelly was the son of a NASA scientist who helped develop the first camera used to photograph Mars. That's awesome. I love Hmm. that. And his mother was a high school teacher who worked with emotionally troubled teens. And Richard grew up with reverence for the two Steves, Stephen King and Stephen Hawking. And he also really loved the sci-fi writer Philip K. Dick, who was very into alternate universe timelines. Uh, Richard Kelly was inspired to become a filmmaker when he saw David Fincher's music video for Aerosmith's Janie Got a Gun. And he was so taken by this music video that he actually called MTV up and asked who made it. Put all this together, you basically get the plot of Donnie Darko. You know, his father was a NASA scientist, mom worked with troubled teens, Love Stephen King, Philip K. Dick, Stephen Hawking, and David Fincher. As Richard Kelly said in the documentary Deus Ex Machina, The Philosophy of Donnie Darko, I saved up for 23 years to write that script. It was 23 years in the waiting and the floodgates opened and I went for it. Now, the exciting incident of Donnie Darko occurs when a huge piece of mechanical equipment from a jumbo jet falls out of the sky and crashes into Donnie's bedroom in the Darko family home. Thankfully, while Donnie himself was elsewhere because he sleepwalked. Sleptwalked? Sleepwalked. (laughs) This terrifying scenario was actually based on a true story that Richard Kelly remembered reading about as a kid when a large piece of ice fell off a wing of a jet and smashed into a house somewhere near where he grew up and into the bedroom of a teenager. Thankfully, the kid wasn't in his bedroom at the time, but the house was severely damaged. I tell you, man, I tried to look up Ice Falls from Plain, Virginia, 1980s to to get this. Um... (laughs) That happens a lot. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I really don't like that. There are that, entirely that, yeah. too many instances of giant blocks of ice falling from planes and crushing things. As Kelly later told Games Radar, I remember reading about the story and it always stuck with me how disturbing that might have been for that boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If he, he must have felt like, is that some kind of warning? Were they trying to kill me? Was this some kind of a sign? And as an interesting slash terrifying aside i guess throughout the production of the movie richard kelly dealt with all these naysayers who insisted that you couldn't have an engine fall off a plane because that simply doesn't happen then on august 27th 2000 supposedly the very day they were shooting the scene where the jet engines smashed through the bedroom set a boeing 747 bound for amsterdam made an emergency landing at los angeles international airport after quote a dishwasher sized engine part reportedly fell off landing on the nearby dockweiler beach that's horrifying i don't like flying as it is now i (laughs) don't like planes as a concept (laughs) oh So this real-life plane incident provided a starting point for Richard Kelly's movie. And he says he remembered thinking, okay, piece of ice, that's interesting. But what if it was an engine that fell off the plane? And what if they never found the plane? And that's part of the mystery, figuring out where the engine came from. And then, 
If Donnie got out of the bed and wasn't in his room when all this destruction occurred, why? What was the voice that draws this teenage boy out of bed to dodge the bullet from the heavens? What's the journey he goes along? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a first bong rip idea if I've ever heard one, but it's a compelling one. Despite the dense plot and really rather rigid rules about time and space that make up this movie. Richard Kelly says that he wrote the original 150-page script in a stream-of-consciousness fashion in just 28 days. As someone who's been working on a screenplay, the same screenplay, on and off for seven years, I find that infuriating. Uh, Interestingly, Donnie Darko takes place in the same length of time that it took to write it. Or at least that's what Kelly claims. The mythology (laughs) around this movie is very dense. The movie opens up with Donnie's countdown to the end of the world. 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. That is when the world will end. (laughs) Kelly says that he wanted this movie to take place over the length of a lunar cycle. And that time frame that he created for this movie came from adding or subtracting one number from the precise length of a lunar cycle, which is 27 days, 7 hours, 43 minutes, and 11 seconds. Which is why the film opens with the song The Killing Moon, Lunar Cycle, by mm-hmm. Echo and the Bunnymen. We'll talk about the bunny stuff later. This <laughs> is layers upon layers of this. I, I got to tip my hat to the world building this guy does. Um, this was the movie that first taught me about Easter eggs. And for years, I thought that they were called Easter eggs because of Frank the Bunny in this movie. <laughs> That's yeah, like years later before I realized that wasn't true. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Shockingly, the only fan theory that I haven't read about this is that Donnie Darko is a werewolf um, <laughs> tied to the lunar cycle. We should have gotten that, oh, wow. to be honest. <laughs> oh, wow. That's good. That's really good, huh? I've Yeah, I've never even considered that. <laughs> it's all a werewolf huh. fever dream. <laughs> but yeah, the, the whole 28 days thing is a recurring theme in this movie. Uh, it says it was written in 28 days. Plot takes place over 28 days. And the shoot took place over 28 days, mm. which feels like some kind of like Freemasonry style rigid adherence to, I don't know, maybe it's OCD. Or the number 23 starring Jim Carrey. <laughs> Have you seen that movie? Yes. Yes. A long time ago. <laughs> Uh, Jenna Malone's character memorably asks in the movie, Donnie Darko, what the hell kind of name is that? Sounds like a superhero. To which Donnie replies, what makes you think I'm not? Which I thought was so badass when I first saw this movie. (laughs) Oh my God, I love that line. Uh, Richard Kelly fashions Donnie Darko as kind of a superhero with, you know, the falling jet engine as his origin story. That's what sends the universe off into, I'm not even going to continue that line of thinking because it gets too complicated. Never mind. (laughs) And in keeping with the tradition of comic superheroes, Kelly gives him an alliterative name, a la Peter Parker, Bruce Banner, and Susan Storm. And other characters in Donnie Darko have similar fake-sounding names. There's Charita Chen, Frankie Fiedler, Day Dennis, and Joni James. Gotta have that alliterative thing. Yeah. Um, and though he would deny it for years, Kelly would later admit that Donnie Darko did draw from his own upbringing. He later said, it's probably much more of an autobiographical film than people realize, and I've pretty much been able to reconcile that now that I'm much older. As a result, he set the film in the fictional town of Middlesex, Virginia, similar to where he grew up in Midlothian, Virginia. Um, Shout out to a boatload of my Virginia friends. A lot of them grew up in and around Midlow. It's a suburb of uh, Richmond. Uh, This got a little tricky, though, since they did film this in Long Beach, California, and Kelly said that they had a hard time uh, shooting around all of the palm trees and even got um, (laughs) fake uh, 
I guess what is it like, like a tree trunk, like a bark that you wrap around yeah. a palm tree to make it look like a not a palm tree. Um, <laughs> yeah, the old lady who is uncharitably referred to as Grandma Death by all the students was based <laughs> on a real person that he knew. And okay, that's weird. And self-help lessons were apparently part of his school curriculum. Although, yeah, they probably didn't get quite uh, a character on the order of uh, Patrick Swayze's to come and talk to kids. At least I hope they didn't. Oh, yeah, like those old Tony Robbins, Joel Osteen guy with the headset mic type deal. <laughs> How are yeah. we doing today? Come on, you guys can do <laughs> better so than creepy. that. You guys can do better than that. How are we doing, Midlothian High School? And the most obvious tell, of course, is that the film was set in 1988, 12 years earlier than when it was shot in the year 2000. This is obviously a reflection on the Reagan-era suburbia that Kelly had lived through, although he does make Donnie slightly older if you're trying to do a one-to-one comparison of the ages. And the studio thought that this was a weird choice to set the film in this close of a, an, a recent era. Uh, basically because it caused them just enough headaches to be annoying but doesn't actually impact the plot in any meaningful way. Um, Kelly later said, when we made Donnie Darko, the 80s wasn't that far behind us. No one was making 80s period pieces in the year 2000, but we did. A lot of people from the financial side thought we were wasting resources by doing it in 1988. They told us just to set it in 2000. I said it had to be 88. I saw it as a very specific time. My movies take place in very specific times. The date, the month, the year are always very identifiable in my movies. For this movie, it's Halloween 1988, right before the election, Bush versus Dukakis. And that would, uh, you know, obviously the first line in the movie. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character says, I'm voting for Dukakis. Man, every single line of this movie was like some mine or someone else's I, I knew um, AIM status <laughs> profile away <laughs> message at one point um and for kelly this was a conscious choice to signal a uh, an era of cultural shift by having a liberal teenager confront her conservative parents at the close of the reagan era and some people have said that this is kind of a way of uh putting donnie darko in the lineage of reagan era horror films but according to kelly it actually went deeper than that. He said, I intended it to be at a time of transition, setting it on the eve of an election where Ronald Reagan was leaving office and you had all these teenagers who were rejecting the war on drugs and seeing censorship and the last temptation of Christ being banned from theaters. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> and the self-help movement and motivational speakers showing up in schools gave kids something to fight against. And of course, a new sort of liberalism emerged in those teenagers who obviously went on to help elect Bill Clinton four years later. So begins Richard Kelly not giving an inch when it comes to making this movie. I'm 25. I must direct. It must take place in 1988. This one shot needs to be one unbroken yeah. shot. Yeah. The chutzpah. I know. God bless him. Yeah. After finishing the script, Richard Kelly spent most of 1999 trying to get this thing sold. And his obvious talent got him meetings, but this unclassifiable, intricate, ultra cerebral scripts led to a lot of rejections. He said all of 1999 was just meeting after meeting after meeting of people saying thanks, but no thanks. Every studio said no, and it was universally rejected. People were telling him, you know, look, this is a great writing sample, but the script itself is functionally useless. It's a great <laughs> unproducible script. And most studio people just advised him to water it down into like a standard issue teen horror movie. But Richard Kelly wasn't about to let that happen. There was tentative interest from Ben Stiller's production company, 
and also director Sidney Pollack, of all people. And there was also a rumor that Joel Schumacher was really interested in directing the movie. But the other <laughs> big problem about why this wasn't getting sold was that Richard Kelly was extremely possessive of the story, and he wanted to direct it himself. Needless to say, it was not exactly appealing for studios to let a 25-year-old first-timer run rampant with his needlessly complicated vanity project. Kelly said, There were people that thought I was very foolish for not letting someone else make it, but I knew that they would rewrite it, and they would not set the movie in 1988. It would be a modern-day piece, and they would change a lot of the story. I just could never let that happen. The tenacity of this guy, damn. Yeah. In the meantime, as he was trying to get the script for Donnie Darko sold, Kelly wrote a screenplay adaptation for the young adult novel Holes by Lewis Satcher, <laughs> which is amazing. I think it was later made with um, Shia LaBeouf, Shia LaBeouf, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the studio, unsurprisingly, went with another writer because Richard Kelly's version was too dark and adult. And he also sold a TV pilot to Fox about a group of comedy writers at Harvard University, probably Harvard Lampooners, who befriend a fellow student and bring him to Los Angeles after their pranks drive him to a nervous breakdown. Unfortunately, <laughs> the pilot was never produced, but I would love to see that. That sounds great. So despite considerable buzz being generated by the script, Donnie Darko was basically dead around L.A. in early 2000. That is until two big name actors intervened, Drew Barrymore, who we'll talk about in a second, and Jason Schwartzman. Jason Schwartzman was fresh off his star-making role in another offbeat high school movie, Wes Anderson's Rushmore, and he wanted to sign on to play Donnie Darko, which I think would have changed the whole movie. I cannot imagine that. I, no, yeah, it no. would have been too quirky, too mel yeah. too melodramatic, too or not even melodramatic. I yeah, too like Jason Schwartzman would have just been too. I feel like he's too mugging. precocious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like him. I love Rushmore, but... Oh, know. yeah. No, Rushmore's great, but I mean, I don't know, man. Jake Gyllenhaal is weird enough to offset his handsomeness, I think, in this movie. Like, he really has that kind of, like, dead-eyed stare thing oh, going. That The guy who, who was in the bunny suit... Yeah. Talks about being terrified of Jake Gyllenhaal, which is hilarious <laughs> because the guy in the bunny suit was probably freaking out everybody else on the set. But yeah, he said when Gyllenhaal would like look at him with like his head lowered down and his eyes raised. Yeah. Just, oh, yeah. It's so upsetting. Yeah. 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 So really hard to imagine this with Jason Schwartzman. But uh, yeah, he basically called Richard Kelly out of the blue. Before this, it gets even weirder. There were some other people who were, I guess, up for consideration for Donnie Darko, and all of them across the board were terrible choices. <laughs> they talked to Vince Vaughn, who I guess, took, I guess took himself out of consideration because at 31, he thought he was too old to play a 16-year-old high schooler. That's the worst idea. Yeah. Was that Joel Schumacher who pitched this? I, I don't know. I mean, this was Good after Lord. Swingers. Like, he's properly, like, old. Yeah. Uh, Mark Wahlberg also met with Richard Kelly about playing Donnie Darko, but for some reason, Wahlberg insisted that he play Donnie with a lisp, and this, I guess, didn't align with Kelly's vision, so they passed on Mark Wahlberg. And there was also Patrick Fugit, who was the kid who played the lead in Almost Famous. I could see that. Yeah, that actually gets a little closer, but... Everything changed when they had a meeting with Jason Schwartzman, and Richard Kelly later said, When Jason became attached, all of a sudden it legitimized me as a director. I owe him an enormous debt. I don't think I'd have a career if it weren't for Jason and his support. He helped bring a lot of enthusiasm and financing to the screenplay. And another nice thing that Jason Schwartzman did was arrange for Richard Kelly to have a meeting with his uncle, Francis Ford Coppola. 
Obviously, huge deal for this first-time director who was 24, 25 at the time to have a bit of mentoring from such a heavy hitter. And Kelly later described this as a -a once-in-a-lifetime meeting. I had this amazing hour-long meeting with him, and he outlined my script, and he was asking all these questions about the themes, and it was just amazing. He had mapped out the dialogue and was trying to get me to extract all the thematics and the meaning of the piece. And even proposed that Kelly and the actors involved with the project go up to his vineyard in Northern California together to talk it through, which I thought was very nice. And I guess during his meeting, Coppola circled one of Drew Barrymore's lines in the script that read, The kids have to figure it all out these days because their parents, they don't have a clue. And Kelly said Coppola circled that and slid the binder towards him and said, That line of dialogue, that's what your whole movie's about right there. And Richard Kelly later reflected on this meeting with Francis. He said, I think he was looking at me as being at the very beginning of my career, and he probably saw potential, and he wanted to make sure that I didn't screw it up. But the key figure that got Donnie Darko made was Drew Barrymore. Really, the just the, yeah, she is absolutely the unquestionable MVP of this movie. Um, not only did she lend her star power to the film by signing on to play the role of Donnie's liberal English teacher, Miss Pomeroy, but her production company, Flower Productions, put somewhere in the neighborhood of four and a half million into this movie. You said it was sent to her by Jason Schwartzman or his agent? I think Jason Schwartzman's agent sent it to Drew's production company because Drew was a big fan of Rushmore and just purely interested in knowing what he was up to next. And so when he got attached to Donnie Darko, they got their hands on a script and really liked it. Interesting. Also, they named Drew Barrymore's character, Ms. Pomeroy, after um, a researcher at the uh, a sex researcher at the Kinsey Institute. Apparently. Okay. Sure. Um, Everything has meaning in this movie. It'll drive you insane. Yeah, well, anyway, we'll get we'll get to this. Uh, Kelly visited Drew on the set of Charlie's Angels, which is <laughs> the least Donnie Darko movie in the world, directed by McGee. I think McGee was giving him first-time director tips. It's like Francis Ford Coppola invited him to his vineyard to talk over the script. McGee invited him into his trailer for bumps of cocaine and to, like, ogle the dailies. Um, <laughs> Kelly described it that set visit as uh, stepping into Candyland. I met Cameron Diaz. It was wild. Then we went to Drew's trailer and she was finishing reading the script. Uh, you know, and again, basically came down to her. You know, he told The Guardian in a different interview. Once Drew Barrymore signed on, we got the finance that we needed. Four and a half million. Having Drew also helped us get other actors who might have been reluctant to work with a first-time director. And perhaps unsurprisingly, no one was paid especially well for this movie. Uh, the actors basically worked for scale, which is wild when you do consider that Drew Barrymore or uh, Network TV then uh, star Noah Weil and Swayze. He said nobody did Donnie Darko for the money. Kelly did. Nobody got paid well to do it. It was about the artistic experience. Those experiences are the most pure when you're there for the material. Speaking of Drew Barrymore, we cannot get through a 20-page podcast about this without bringing up Cellar Door, which she explains is posited by, quote, a famous linguist as the most beautiful combination of words in the English language. I always heard that it was C.S. Lewis. Is that right? Is that? Uh, did you hear that as well? Or am I confusing C.S. Lewis and Tolkien? C.S. Lewis, there have been a number of authors who have praised this combination of words, and C.S. Lewis was one of them. Okay, well, okay. Could be written in the 1903 Cyrus Lauren Hooper novel, G-Boy, um, where an unnamed Italian savant 
believes that Celador is the most beautiful combination of English sounds. In 1920, no less an authority than uh, H.L. Mencken wrote that the phrase Celador is musical. Twelve years later, Dorothy Parker commented that she preferred Celador to some of the words that Wilfred J. Funk, who is not the frontman of Grand Funk Railroad, but <laughs> president of Funk and Wagnalls, over his choices. And Tolkien, yep, the uh, Lord of the Rings guru, praised the phrase in his 1955 essay, English and Welsh, in which he writes, Most English-speaking people will admit that cellar door is beautiful, especially if disassociated from its sense and its spelling. More beautiful than, say, sky, and far more beautiful than beautiful. Uh, and yeah, Norman Mailer, which is hilarious to me, like, Norman Hates Mailer everything, wrote, yeah. loves cellar door. <laughs> Today, most reputable linguists, however, are united in believing that the most beautiful phrase in the English language is hog waste lagoon. <laughs> I'm, I'm still sad that you never use that as an album title <laughs> in a band. For, for our band. Yeah, there's, no, there's, was, there's oh. time yet. That's true. That is true. <laughs> you know, C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley died on the same day in 1963, but they both got overshadowed by JFK, who also died the same day, November 22nd. <laughs> Do you say Huxley? Didn't Huxley like supposedly get like loaded on mushrooms right before he was gonna die? Uh, I think it was acid. I think his, he, his uh, last thing yeah. he ever wrote was like what Dose he wanted me. his wife to inject him with. Yeah. Good lord. It all feels relevant to Donnie Darko somehow. Yeah. It does. Yeah. yeah, it does. So Drew Barrymore was the savior of this movie, but her involvement posed a problem. She was only available for a single week during the summer of 2000 because she was tied up appearing in the Penny Marshall movie Riding in Cars with Boys. This created a scheduling conflict with Jason Schwartzman, and considering Drew Barrymore was both the bigger star and also putting up the money for the movie, she won out and Jason Schwartzman had to drop out. That's the official version, at least. Richard Kelly says that uh, he, maybe Jason Schwartzman was having some second thoughts about the movie. I don't know. But I guess Richard Kelly had a panic attack after Jason dropped out, as he should. First time director who, you know, mentioned earlier what having Jason Schwartzman signed on the star in this movie did for him about making this project a reality and legitimizing him as a director. And now he's gone. Uh, but he says that he got a voicemail from Drew that night and he said it was one of the nice voicemails he'd ever received and she said on this voicemail that she was into the film regardless and uh you know whether or not they had a buzzy lead or not and they'd make a great film together which i thought was very nice and it was in drew barrymore's office that richard kelly first met jake gyllenhaal and he'd just been in his first major lead role october sky and it was basically love at first sight kelly said within 30 seconds it was clear to me that he was the right actor and he apparently was in the midst of a bit of an emo phase because he came in with a metal chain belt and spiked hair. And he was only 19, which wasn't too far off from the age Donnie was supposed to be, 16. Uh, and one of the producers in the room described it as like meeting Holden Caulfield. <laughs> Richard Kelly said, it was a gut intuition that he was the one. I felt he was an incredibly strong anchor for the film. And Jake Gyllenhaal over the years has spoken eloquently and extensively about reading the script for the first time. And this is an interview we did with The Guardian in 2016. I was frantically running around Los Angeles doing loads of auditions. I remember pulling over to the side of the road to finish reading Richard's script and being mesmerized. It was clearly influenced by classic directors, Ron Howard, Steven Spielberg, but with this strange psychosis, it beautifully captured the experience of moving into adulthood, the world that felt so solid becoming movable and liquid. I thought, this is what my adolescence felt like. 
although I don't speak and have never spoken to rabbits. <laughs> that was a really beautiful way to explain that. <laughs> Hilariously, Jake Gyllenhaal initially didn't want to meet Richard Kelly because he figured that the person responsible for the script must surely be some kind of antisocial goth weirdo obsessed with death. But when they did finally meet face-to-face, Jake said he found this preppy college kid, totally unassuming, really lovely, very kind, just a regular guy. But Jake did actually base some of his Donnie Darko mannerisms on Richard Kelly, including his self-conscious slouched posture and sometimes mumbled speech. Joel Hall told the LA Times in 2001, I'm a firm believer of the unconscious being the teller of some truth, and I feel Richard wrote the script very unconsciously. The issues that Donnie Darko confronts are metaphors for things in Kelly's life. They obviously resonate with him in a pretty intense way. I mean, there must be some stuff going on in Richard Kelly's mind. (laughs) And then (laughs) Richard Kelly was also interviewed for this piece. And I guess in an effort to dissuade the inevitable comparisons, he said, I'm not Donnie Darko. He explicitly (laughs) said that. Uh, I didn't realize this until researching this episode. Jake Jonal's parents were big deals in Hollywood. His father was a director and his mother was a screenwriter. And his godparents were Paul Newman and Jamie Lee Curtis. So clearly this kid has ties to old Hollywood. And for his performance in Donnie Darko, he borrowed a trick from one of my favorite acting legends. I know yours too, Michael Caine. We've talked about this in several episodes. Jake tried to blink as little as possible because he felt like it would make Donnie look more psychotic to just stare And also, as all good actors know, blinking weakens you. (laughs) We're quoting a a fantastic tutorial that Michael Caine made in the 80s that's on YouTube about how to act to camera. And it's incredible. Go check it out if you haven't seen it. Uh, Speaking of the Gyllenhaals and their uh, golden road paved for them by their (laughs) forebears, uh, we cannot... (laughs) forget Jake's sister Maggie who plays his sister in the movie Jake took credit for her casting uh, in 2016 telling the Guardian it was my idea to have my real life sister Maggie play my sister in the film we were going through a competitive phase which fed into the dinner table scenes where uh, you don't remember she indelibly tells him to go suck a f- that was you you did you read that was improvised no no Oh, you yes. Wrote. Yes, I did. Sorry. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> um, Jake continued, Maggie was the reason I got into acting is the, and is the more formidable of us. Yet I was the one who started my professional career first. Imagine being in a movie with your obnoxious little brother as the lead. However, Richard Keller said that his actual idea to cast Maggie was inspired by seeing her in Cecil B. Demented. Never seen that movie. That's John really? Waters, right? Yeah. Uh, And that is a film in which her character drinks urine. (laughs) Uh, But he was also interested in seeing how the Gyllenhaal's real-life sibling rivalry would show up on tape. And apparently Maggie actually tried to talk him out of casting her because she hadn't done much uh, serious film acting before. When did she do Secretary? Uh, I think it was right after. I think it was like 2002. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Um, And as for the rest of the family, there are some fun fantasy castings going on here as well, as there always are. Tim Robbins was the first choice for the role of Eddie Darko, but they couldn't fit his ginormous body in the frame. Um, (laughs) That's Donnie's dad. Yes, Donnie's dad. I always feel, I always forget how tall Tim Robbins is. And then you just see him with like next to the other actors in a film. You're like, holy God. Um, (laughs) It's the most realistic part of uh, Jacob's Ladder is that he has debilitating back problems in that movie. (laughs) 
Uh, but the role would go to Holmes Osborne, who is Guy Patterson's dad in That Thing You Do. Mara Wilson was considered for the role of little sister Samantha Darko, who memorably is part of Sparkle Motion, figures into the Duran Duran lip sync at the end of the movie. But she turned it down, uh, and the role would eventually go to actress Davey Chase. Donnie Darko's mother, Rose, was played by the actress Mary McDonnell, who was so stoked to be on this movie that she got a speeding ticket on her way to the set, the first one ever in her life. <laughs> I love that. Good for her. And we can't go any further before shouting out one of my favorite actresses in this movie, the legendary Catherine Ross, probably, I mean, to me, most famous for her role as Mrs. Robinson's daughter, Elaine, in The Graduate. You know, the one Dustin Hoffman runs off with at the end of the movie. Spoilers. And also the heroine. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Spoilers for this 55-year-old movie. <laughs> and also, she's the heroine of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I think she's also in the original um, Separate Wives. Oh, Pretty sure. And she had dropped out of the limelight for a while when her name was mentioned for consideration to play Donnie's psychiatrist, Dr. Thurman. And Richard Kelly later said he didn't even realize she was still acting, but they drove out to visit her at home in Malibu, and they were a little surprised when they knocked on the door and Sam Elliott answered. <laughs> Fane, I, I, I just think of him as like a living Old West stereotype. I just yeah. picture him as the character in The Big Lebowski Yep, all the time. I had no idea they were married. Sam Elliott and Catherine Ross. And I guess Richard Kelly had driven all the way out there to try to sell her on the role, but Catherine spent the first 20 minutes pitching them on why she should be cast. And finally they said, wait, wait a minute. Like, you want to do this? We thought we were here to convince you. And she said, oh, well, this is one of the easier meetings I've had. And, <laughs> and that was that. She signed on. And Donnie Darko's ties with classic cinema aren't just relegated to the actors, but also the sets. I love this factoid so much. In many ways, Donnie Darko is a perverted, warped version of a John Hughes 80s teen movie. From the whole weird kid meets the new girl in school narrative to the fact that it was set in the 80s and the musical choices. And this is all fitting because the home in Long Beach, California that was used to shoot exteriors for John Hughes's movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, was just a minute walk down the road from the Donnie Darko house that gets crushed by the falling jet engine. I think the neighborhood was called the Virginia Country Club, which is weird because it's in California. And uh, the production just set up camp there for a week, which helped the very tight deadline. They just shot all throughout the neighborhood. The bus stop scenes were there. Patrick Swayze's self-help guru character's mansion was there. And the Darko's house was there. Uh, I just think it's so cool that the Darko's and the Bueller's were kind of neighbors. <laughs> they would not have gotten along. No, 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 no. <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. 
Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Kelly had a tough time during this shoot because it was his first movie, and he only had four weeks to do it. And I cannot stress this enough. He was 25 years old. But what age what age do directors typically make their first movies? Is it do they is it like I mean, in I the mid, know, like late thir- mid late twenties? I, I I don't have an answer to that, and I'm embarrassed hmm. because I went to film school and I should. But I mean, I, I'm sure that I mean there are young directors, but something on this scale is Yeah. Is unusual. Ooh, PTA was 26 when Boogie Nights came out. Really? Yeah. Well, all right. Well, that's still okay. That's still also incredibly young. And as Richard Kelly told The Guardian, because so many of the cast and crew were young, there was a real energy on the set, but I was stressed out. Being 25, I had to justify myself a lot, prove I had the skill. I lost 20 pounds on the shoot. But he got a little help from his director of photography, a guy by the name of Stephen Posner, who was 31 years older than Kelly and had worked on classics like Blade Runner and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, and it was really cute. Posner sensed that Richard Kelly was nervous to meet him because he was so much older and established. So he told him, Richard, from this point on, you and I are the same age. Don't think of me as being more experienced than you. My experience is yours. I won't tell you how to direct your movie, but I'll be there to guide you through it. I thought that was really classy. <laughs> As opposed to Steven Spielberg who just elbows people out of the way. <laughs> Let me direct this. <laughs> yeah, wearing a hat that says, the real director of this movie. <laughs> oh. And a fisherman's vest. <laughs> 
Richard Kelly said that the toughest part is always the first week of the shoot. He said, I'm always trying to do so much with not enough money and not enough days, not enough hours in the day. So that first week is really terrifying for everyone. And it was extra terrifying because it was this wild, provocative script that no one could really categorize. And we needed 10 million, but only had 4.5. And it was this crazy 28 day schedule. And here I was just turned 25. And a lot of people were doing side eye at each other. Like, does this guy know what he's doing? And I guess the first shot of the movie was an early shot in the film when Donnie's asleep in the middle of the road and he's like up on the mountain and he sees this like incredible vista in the background at dawn. And Richard Kelly was so nervous and so excited when he was shooting this, his first shot of his first major movie, that instead of yelling cut when he was done, he just yelled action again. <laughs> just That's adorable. Cute. Yeah, it doesn't exactly engender confidence on the part of the crew, but sweet all the same. But the turning point came when Kelly shot the montage at the high school that is set to Tears for Fears, Head Over Heels. It's an incredible shot. It's just, it's so movie. Yeah, it's so perfect. And it's such a great introduction, but it was just, again, the chutzpah of this man. <laughs> uh, they were shooting, basically, it was a full-on music video without actually having secured the rights to the song, which as, uh, what episode did you explain that in? Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions, cruel yeah, intentions, for yeah. Bittersweet Symphony. You do not do that because if you don't get the rights, your scene is cut to the completely wrong thing. <laughs> and yeah, this is just one of several scenes that he insisted on doing that with. And it did backfire on him for one scene. We'll get to that later. But it came together for Head Over Heels. Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears later told The Ringer for their Donnie Darko oral history that it took a personal request from Drew Barrymore herself to get them to agree to license it out. That's like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, going bowling with Paul McCartney to get... Um, <laughs> yeah, trying to get hey Jude. Jude. Yeah. Um, for, uh, for Royal Tenenbaums, yeah. Yeah. Drew Barrymore, MVP, can't say it yeah. enough. But Kelly continued to refuse to make this easy on himself or others. <laughs> he wanted the entire elaborately choreographed scene to be shot in a one a single take, a la the Boogie Nights opener. I'm younger than PTA. I'm going to do the opening shot, too. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever PTA I'm, can do, I can do better. <laughs> I don't know why I'm making him sound like yeah, there you go. I don't know why I'm making him sound like the cigar chopping example. Um, but yeah, it's insane, insane to do it. Uh, even even done in a single day, by the way. Which oh my god, yeah. The producers talked to uh, the aforementioned director of photography, Stephen Posner, to tell this kid, "Hey, there is just too much ground to cover in this. We have no time and no money. How about we do it in four or five shots?" And uh, nobody wanted studio, this. Nobody yeah, wanted the, this. The studio thought he was out of his mind. And then he brought an edit in as part of the dailies a few days later. And as in his words, this is the moment that made him that everyone thought, okay. He said everyone immediately flipped out. They got it. They were so excited. You could see everyone breathe a sigh of relief that I just might know what I'm doing. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> uh, Patrick Swayze, once again, this film. For a first-time director, really corralled some talent. There's Drew Barrymore, Catherine Ross, Mary McDonald, who there's an Independence Day connection going strong in this movie. We'll talk about that. Mary McDonald played the first lady in Independence Day. And Swayze. Swayze plays the creepy new age guru, Jim Cunningham, who, uh, you know, wins over the hearts and minds of the moms of the town and clashes with Donnie during the school assembly. When Donnie objects to the love and fear binary, Cunningham's entire philosophy is based around. And then he's released. He's revealed to be a child pornographer at the film at the end of the film. Not a subtle moment, but effective <laughs> nonetheless. 
<laughs> just like <laughs> the nuclear option of making your character reprehensible. Yeah. <laughs> People are w- more willing to forgive murders than like genocide and child porn. I mean, this is not a uh, subtle movie. A jet engine crashes through the kid's bedroom. It's true. I mean, come on. Uh, Richard Kelly later described Patrick Swayze as the nicest guy. He wanted to take a flamethrower to his image. He was fearless. Uh, he was fearless because he frosted his hair for this role <laughs> and apparently brought articles of his real life clothing from the 1980s, like the pink Izod and the white pleated pants. Good for him for still fitting into them. Yeah, wow, uh, yeah. And he filmed the, the self-help commercials, infomercials in the film on his own ranch in Calabasas. And the kid who yells, I'm not afraid anymore, who later appears at uh, Donnie's um, school assembly, uh, asks the fight. question. Yeah. Uh, it's so great, which suggests that he's one of Cunningham's plants. Put a fake kid in the audience, have him uh, set up all your all your bits. That's Stink what we do in this salesman. podcast. That's yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm an elaborate plant of yours. Uh, it's a long con. Uh, the writer Lindsay Romaine wrote a really interesting theory about this whole part in her piece on uh, Roger Ebert. She said, Jim is a beloved, empathetic figure in the community, but is in truth a predator. Donnie burns Jim's house and exposes his secret stash of child porn. But his contingency of zealots won't accept Jim's true nature and instead pledge fealty to his innocence. Not so different from the Trumpian logic we're forced to endure even now. An omnipresent, insidious reminder that the hell of non-truth is inescapable. Another flavor in the Neapolitan scoop of barren hope. That is truly an all-time sentence. I'm getting that tattooed on my forehead. Um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but we have Noah Wiley. He was starring in ER at the time, and he originally thought he was getting the Jim Cunningham role. Uh, and he gets the, um, the, the slightly shaggier, but still important in terms of exposition dumping, role of uh, Kenneth Monatoff, who is another of Donnie's teachers, who is dating Drew Barrymore's character. And no less, no less a similarly 80s macho icon than David Hasselhoff was also considered for the part of Jim Cunningham. I bet you they couldn't afford the Hoff. They couldn't afford the Hoff. No. This is pre-burger uh, video. So yeah. He was still, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was still flying high. Maybe the fact that he missed out on this incredible role is what, what, what triggered that spiral. <laughs> Lord knows. Uh, this is probably the least interesting reason why Donnie Darko is notable, but it marks the live-action feature film debuts of both Seth Rogen and Ashley Tisdale. Hmm. Seth Rogen was 18, and then I think he was uh, a year into his Freaks and Geeks role when he was cast as the bully Ricky Danforth, which is just such a tremendous name. This was a few years before he uh, appeared in his next movie as Scott the Overeager Cameraman in Anchorman, (laughs) The Legend of Ron Burgundy. During an interview with Collider, Seth Rogen remembered the shoot as a great experience, but he, quote, didn't get the movie back when he filmed it, and... Quote, I still don't get it, but I had a good time. He was joined in his movie Bullying by Alex Greenwald, who's better known as the singer of the band Phantom Planet, who did the opening (laughs) song California for the show The O.C. He plays the coke-sniffing bully Seth Devlin. That must have been Schwartzman. I'm just putting that together. What? Who got him in there? Because Schwartzman is a Phantom Planet, right? Rooney. Oh, that's... Aren't they... Why are those bands indelibly linked in my mind? Well, Schwartzman, the lead singer of Rooney is a Schwartzman, but I don't know if it's, I don't know which Schwartzman, I don't know if it's his brother or cousin or what. No, it was Jason Schwartzman. I was right. He, he was drummed in Phantom, in Phantom Planet? Planet. Yep. What? 
I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. And Jason Schwartzman is his brother. Okay. So, wow, the Schwartzmans have Rooney. A dynasty. And Phantom <laughs> Planet. Wow. We didn't even get into Talia Shar and uh, Sophia. Wow, oh, Nicholas Cage. And Nicholas Cage. Cage. Good Lord. Mm. I did not know that Phantom Planet was part of the tangled web of the Coppolas. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> Uh, but a pre-high school musical Ashley Tisdale also makes an extremely brief appearance as a sort of nerdy girl named Kim with frizzy hair who asks a question at the school assembly to Patrick Swayze's character. Well, as you might expect for a film nerd like Richard Kelly, Donnie Darko is jammed with nods to classic cinema. For example, the opening scene where Donnie wakes up on a hillside took inspiration from 1951's A Place in the Sun when Montgomery Cliff's character is introduced. Richard Kelly also watched Stanley Kubrick's Lolita very often while preparing for this movie. Uh, Weird thing to do. Yeah, which is uh, referenced obliquely during the party scene where Donnie's sister is dressed like a minor character in Lolita, Vivian Darkbloom. Um, I don't know, if you think about it, between the child pornography of Patrick Swayze's character yeah. and even to a certain extent, the sparkle motion dance sequence yeah. to the Duran Duran song... That yeah. always made me uncomfortable. It's weird. It's it is, weird and it's, gross. It's weird. Okay, good. I'm glad. We're, yeah. Okay. Uh, this isn't a movie reference, but there's another shot at the house party uh, that features a kid jumping on a trampoline wearing a Ronald Reagan mask. Supposedly, this is a reference to a photo of Hunter S. Thompson doing the same thing, which I choose <laughs> to believe. The scene where Donnie rides a bike while wearing a hoodie, of course, is a reference to E.T., which was not only one of Richard Kelly's favorite movies as a kid, but also starred Drew Barrymore, so a nice little nod there. He also paid tribute, although in an oblique way, to Francis Ford Coppola. Kelly said that he watched the slightly lesser known or lesser appreciated uh, mid-80s Francis Ford Coppola movie, Peggy Sue Got Married <laughs> with Kathleen Turner. He watched this movie with his DP because he wanted to shoot in the same kind of locations to create what he called a fantasy suburban landscape. And also the outfits for the aforementioned dance troupe Sparkle Motion, who perform at the end of the movie, were modeled after Kathleen Turner's silvery prom dress in Peggy Sue Got Married, which I thought was funny. So that's weird. But there's also a weird connection with another Hollywood classic, thanks to costumer April Ferry, who has a long storied career, including work on your beloved Big Trouble in Little China. Mm -hmm. It's like a multi-decade career. Because she was held to a strict budget for Donnie Darko, uh, she was the one who decided that all the students should be dressed in a school uniform. Not only does it really work well for the plot because it signifies the stifling conformity that Donnie's railing against, but in reality, it was just cheaper and easier to have all the kids dressed in identical white shirts. But this low-budget scent costumer April Ferry into her garage to sift through outfits that she'd saved from earlier productions, and she found an outfit that she'd kept that was worn by Glenn Close in The Big Chill. And it was this brown jacket kind of number. She gave it to the actress playing Donnie Darko's mother, Mary McConnell, and she wears it in the scene that takes place at a school assembly. Well, speaking of April Ferry, we must now arrive at uh, Frank. Oh, God. Frank. Oh, Frank, God. Frank. 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 <laughs> Frank. Frank. I hate this oh, pony. Oh, it's so good. It's so perfect. Richard Kelly once said, I never want to hate my characters. You've got to love all of them. He did not mention if Frank was the exception to that. <laughs> um, people, many people have long assumed that uh, it is a reference 
to the 1950 comedy Harvey, in which James Stewart's best friend is a giant invisible rabbit. Uh, but Kelly explicitly told Entertainment Weekly that he has never seen that film. His true inspiration was Richard Adams' young adult novel Watership Down. Uh, in the director's cut, Drew Barrymore shows the film version of that in her classroom, which is always code for the teacher is hungover. Uh, <laughs> Kelly designed Frank's horrifying rictus grin himself. Those are his actual design sketches in the film during the final Mad World montage. In addition to his convoluted role in the film's multiverse plot, Kelly wanted Frank to be Donnie's only friend, almost like a comfort blanket. What comfort blankets did you have growing up, dude? <laughs> yeah, this, this whole movie is a terrifying insight into Richard Kelly's psychology <laughs> and inner workings. And there are a number of rabbit-themed Easter eggs in the movie. The <laughs> film opens with The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunny Men. There's a scene in which a Volkswagen rabbit drives through the frame. There's a stuffed rabbit next to Maggie Gyllenhaal's character's bed. Donnie appears in a family photo dressed as a rabbit, and he carves Frank's likeness into a jack-o'-lantern, which is an ambitious design. Mm. Um, that whole getup was made by costumer April Ferry, who later worked on Game of Thrones, and it was worn throughout the movie by actor James Duvall. And you can see him when he takes the, the mask off, and he has a gross uh, open wound where his eyes should be. Um, we mentioned Independence Day earlier. He is in Independence Day starring as Randy Quaid's long-suffering son who then watches him uh, get blown up at the end of the film. Hello, boys! <laughs> uh, I'm back! <laughs> and Donnie's mother, as we mentioned, is played by Mary McConnell, who played the first lady in Independence Day. So, canonically, the films take place in the same cinematic universe. <laughs> You heard it here first. Um, J yeah, James Duvall, as creepy as he was in that bunny suit, was freaked out by Jake Gyllenhaal's dead-eyed stare. And as with most things in this movie, most of the production team thought Richard Kelly was insane for basing an enormous part of the plot action around a man in a life-size bunny costume. And then just a few days into shooting, they had someone dress up as Frank and come onto the set. And Jaws literally dropped. <laughs> uh, he told Entertainment Weekly, that was the moment where I knew I was either going to live or die by the rabbit and how people responded to it. He said, the set got really quiet. It was almost like everyone had taken mushrooms and was starting to hallucinate. Everyone was like, this is really intense. So I knew it was working and I felt a sense of relief. I could look around and the makeup artist and the production assistants and the second AD, they were all just really freaked out about it. Stephen Posner, my cinematographer, came up to me and he was like, Rich, I wasn't so sure about the rabbit, but now I get it. Yeah, and that movie theater, in which we'll talk about later, also figures in, uh, was where Frank takes off the rabbit heads, the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. And in honor of its auspicious place in Donnie Darko history, they play this movie every Easter. Not Halloween, Easter. <laughs> <laughs> Adorable and terrifying. And now for a quick It Belongs in Museum segment, the Frank suit, or rather the three <laughs> Frank suits. They all currently reside with illustrious figures in entertainment. The maid mask and suit is owned by producer Jack Morrissey, who co-produced Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Not the man I would have imagined ending up with that. Uh, another mask belongs to Drew Barrymore's production partner, Nancy Jubinen. I think that's how you say her name. And the production team, I guess, had it chromed and given to her as a gift. 
imagine getting that as a gift when you weren't expecting it, like opening a box and there's yeah. that face staring back at you. Especially Good if God. you haven't even seen the movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that registers as hostile. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and then my favorite, Metallica guitarist Kirk Hammett owns another backup of the Frank masks because he's apparently a massive fan of Donnie Darko. Yeah, uh, Hammett's horror and horror movie adjacent memorabilia collection is it's insane i mean he's a millionaire heavy metal musician this is what they get up to when they have more money than (laughs) than sense uh he's had his poster collection displayed as its own exhibit at the peabody essex museum in salem all of his vintage horror movie uh uh, posters and uh he also has boris karloff's costume from the black cat and bella lugosi's outfit from white zombie and one of my favorites, he has this horrifying Tom Savini designed uh, zombie puppet that is used in the opening shot of uh, Day of the Dead by George Romero, which is the third in the of the dead trilogy. And um, yeah, it's it's the it's just missing a lower jaw. So you see its tongue come out through like the bottom of its throat. It's it's disgusting. It's really stomach churning stuff. And Kirk Hammett owns one. Do you know Parliament Funkadelic once drove through Pittsburgh while they were filming that? <laughs> or what? one of them yeah no parliament funkadelic bassist billy nelson uh billy bass nelson <laughs> excuse me i have to say the whole thing every time uh was driving and he found them a shortcut to get to ohio and they wound up in monroeville pennsylvania where george romero was filming night of the living dead and if you know anything about parliament funkadelic they were on drugs <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine inadvertently driving onto the set of Night of the Living Dead after George Clinton has handed out acid to the entire tour bus? Was this 68? When did that would have been around? Yeah, then, must right? have been. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, on the topic of terrifying things to see while you're high, wow, incredible <laughs> that I wrote that transition before we had this amazing uh <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the scene where a liquid sphere blob thing emanates from Donnie's chest out in front of him, leading him to where fate decrees he should walk next. I'm sorry, there's no other way to describe that. I think Richard Kelly describes them as liquid spheres, so we'll go with that. Yeah, it's uh, on the soundtrack as uh, liquid sphere waltz. Ah, okay. And isn't there? Isn't that the? That's the scene that the church, right? The yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, under the Milky Way. Under the Milky Way, yeah. And uh, something in the party, it's the party scene, I think. Yeah. Yep. Uh, apparently that idea came to Richard Kelly, the, the, you know, liquid spheres one night when he was high and watching football and commentator (laughs) John Madden, RIP, used to draw lines on the TV screen to diagram the play showing where the players were about to go when they rolled the tape. I think it's called a telestrator. And Richard Kelly began to wonder, as one does, what would happen if, quote, someone upstairs (laughs) was doing this to humans? (laughs) Someone has someone with more video editing and impression skills than I do needs to dub John Madden do it over that scene in Donnie Darko. Oh, he's going. He went. You see the way he hooked there into the coming into the backfield. Oh, Lauren Steisman came out of nowhere and just creamed him. Uh, yeah, and it's a, he said it was a nod to the Abyss, the liquid metal animation oh, from yeah. the Abyss. We'll and that um, too, but uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, the, watching interviews with Kelly, he talks about it being a nod to James Cameron's The Abyss, but I've also seen in numerous other, uh, yeah, a lot of other people say, yeah, he was just high watching football. So <laughs> I like that. Speaking of extremely does. high thoughts, this brings us to the conversation Donnie has with his friends when they speculate on the sexual behavior of Smurfs. 
Richard Kelly had to go to the estate of the animator named Peyo, who created the Smurfs, to get permission to have this discussion. <laughs> and apparently the estate agreed because the logic about Smurf sex checked out. So this is that. Um, and now the scene takes place when Donnie and his friends are shooting at bottles and cans somewhere on a ranch. In the script, they were supposed to be shooting at a Smurf doll. That's why they're talking about Smurf sex in the first place. Uh, and also why Kelly felt compelled to get everything cleared by the Peyo estate. Uh, probably not a good look to be having inappropriate conversations about your children's character and then literally shooting guns at your figures on camera. Um, but I guess apparently the production team couldn't find a Smurf doll, which is why they switched to shooting at bottles, which this is what truly baffles me for all of his stubborn insistence on doing things exactly his way for the entire shoot. He backed down when it came to obtaining a vintage Smurf doll. I like to imagine that was the line in the budget. The cigar shopping <laughs> executive drew <laughs> drew the line at this kid. He's giving me agita. He's got a 747 turbine. <laughs> He's got, got three bunny suits. No Smurf doll. <laughs> God. And speaking of getting the rights to discuss stuff in sexual terms, Christina Applegate. During one of Donnie Darko's sessions with his psychiatrist, Dr. Thurman, a hypnotized Donnie admits to fantasizing about Christina Applegate on Married with Children. Apparently, that reference was supposed to be Alyssa Milano, who was then starring in the Tony Danza sitcom Who's the Boss back in 88. But this was changed for legal reasons. I guess I, I'm not really sure why. I uh, Maybe because Alyssa Milano was just 16 in 88, but... I, don't know, I guess Christina Applegate was only like a year older. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. One thing that they couldn't clear with legal is the movie that Donnie goes to see with Jenna Malone's character, Gretchen. A date memorably crashed by Frank. Uh, <laughs> Richard Kelly had written that he goes to see the 1984 sci-fi horror flick, Chud, which, Jordan, I will pay for your dinner if you can tell me what that stands for. Oh, s something cannibal humanoid. Oh man! I my one of my professors in school directed worked on Chud. Chud no, Chud too, but the Chud. Oh, the misbegotten yeah. yes. Chud sequel. So I actually am I'm relatively well familiar with this, but what it, cannibal humanoid? I forget. Underground dwellers. Was I right on the first two though? Yes, you were. Oh, Cannibal wow. cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Well yeah. done. Thank you. You get half. You get half of dinner. I get appetizers. <laughs> uh, but they couldn't get the rights to Chud. Uh, it would. <laughs> Have you ever seen that trailer? No, no. It's one of the funniest. It's like the it's the you know it's the trailer voice guy who did everything for like thirty years, and they just keep like cutting to just the word chud. So he's literally just like chud. It's, chud. it's such a funny word. It's such chud. A, like yeah. I can't take the movie seriously. Starring uh, Home Alone star Daniel Stern and John Hurd too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We talked about this in the Rugrats episode. Right, right. The Rugrat Chud alumni went went on to <laughs> populate the cast list of Rugrats. Um, really, a, a talent farm from a minor league talent farm was <laughs> Chud. Anyway, it would take eight to twelve weeks for the clearance for Chud to go through, and since he was working on a twenty-eight day shoot, Kelly had to move on. So fellow director Sam Raimi stepped in and allowed Kelly to use footage from his movie, The Evil Dead, for free. In a funny coincidence, Sam Raimi drove past the theater in Santa Monica the same day they were filming and was just amused to see his, uh, his old movie titer pop up in the marquee. Love that for him. Hmm. Uh, the 
other big clearance fail from the film, although this arguably worked out for the best, is the sparkle motion scene. Donnie's little sister is in this dance troupe coached by the miserable Kitty Farmer. Uh, they performed a choreographed routine to Duran Duran's Notorious in front of the school, but Kelly had shot the scene and choreographed it to a completely different song, West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys. Uh, you can sort of tell that the choreography doesn't line up. Uh, you know, but and on YouTube there are some people who have put West End Girls in there, and it actually it's pretty cool the way it syncs up there. Oh, interesting. I wonder if he didn't do it in the director's cut for still the money reason. Yeah, I guess after and, and anyway after you know pushing for as many of the other songs as he did, he just ran out of money for, <laughs> for West End Girls. Yeah, no Smurf dolls, Smurf dolls, and West End Girls—the two things you cannot have, Kelly. <laughs> Oh, third one. Son of a bitch. There were three. There were three things he couldn't get. <laughs> Smurf doll, West End Girls, and Bono. Yes. Uh, there was another song that the Donnie Darko team failed to get. Composer Michael Andrews, who did the score for the movie, wanted the song MLK by U2 to use for the final scene in the movie. In case, the, in case the Messiah stuff wasn't already getting a little, <laughs> little thick. Yes. Uh, but U2, uh, they ain't cheap. And so they couldn't get the rights. And instead, Michael Andrews turned to his old friend and fellow musician Gary Jules. And they'd been in a high school band together that had done a cover version of the Tears for Fears song, Mad World. And maybe Tears for Fears were on his mind because there was another Tears for Fears song on the soundtrack, Head Over Heels. But for whatever the reason, Michael Andrews decided that this was the song that should end the movie. And Andrews rearranged Mad World as a piano ballad. And they ultimately recorded the song in what I've seen described as either 15 minutes or six hours. Either way, <laughs> very fast. Gary Jules, who actually sang the song, later said, I'm not a big fan of my voice, and it was so naked in the thing, but one of our friends was in the control room with some other people that we know, and when I went in, after we recorded it, she was crying. And the song went to the top spot in the UK in 2003, earning the coveted title of Christmas Number 1. And more importantly to Gary Jules, it earned praise from both members of Tears for Fears. Bandmate Roland Orzabal told Consequence of Sound that the Gary Jules version was Mad World in, quote, its ultimate form. And he apparently called Gary and told him as much. I guess Gary Aww. was driving at the time and had to pull over. He was so excited, which is adorable. And fellow Tears for Fears bandmate Kurt Smith agreed, telling The Ringer, A lot of things we do are lyrically poignant, but set to things that are far more rhythmic and maybe upbeat. The original version of Mad World was very much an up-tempo song, whereas Michael and Gary's version was much more in tune with the lyrics, to be honest. It is. It's perfect. It's it's a, a perfect thing. But yeah. Um, yeah. is he to blame for the... Is this ground zero for stripped down haunting covers of upbeat pop songs? Or is it Johnny Cash's American Hurt? Yeah, I'm going to say Johnny Cash yeah. doing Hurt. Oh, I mean, that, well, that's not a pop song, though, I guess. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Well, the American series started in like 94. So mm -hmm. he may, maybe he did something before then. But yeah, I don't know. We might be able to blame Gary Jules and Michael Andrews for that. I'd rather blame Gary Jules than Johnny Cash, to be honest. That's fair. I think <laughs> so would Gary Jules. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the end of the movie, the big destructive scenes were done on the last two days of shooting. The production team went to what was colloquially known as the airplane graveyard to get an old engine turbine, which they emptied out to make it slightly lighter. I think I read that it was something like 35,000 pounds. Um, and then they just dropped that thing onto the set. One take. <laughs> 
all I got. Got to make sure that everybody was on the right game because you're not doing that again. <laughs> the lens cap was on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to believe this. <laughs> oh, and there's a disused shot from this scene that is you can see it in the deus ex machina donnie darko documentary that shows donnie impaled by a wooden beam in his destroyed room mm. but it was deemed way too disturbing and ultimately went unused they were uh, gonna literally have him on a cross <laughs> <laughs> no it's like right through his chest it's so gross and, and the look in his face he's got that look on his face that we discussed earlier like it's oh. it's really creepy it's it's best left to the imagination yeah no it's a good thing they cut that but sadly, Richard Kelly is not completely happy with how the ending of the movie turned out. He said, the one thing I never got to do that still drives me crazy is the engine going through the time portal. The digital shot of the jet engine, to me, I just can't stand looking at it. We just did not have the money. I wanted to do a whole big miniature of the engine ripping off the plane and the interior of the plane ripping apart, and then the engine breaking apart and plummeting down through the time portal. I wanted to do it the way Christopher Nolan gets to do things. Maybe one day I will get to do that. <laughs> Not after but, Southland Tales, buddy. Uh, <laughs> and the last day of the shoot took place at 4 a.m. when Donnie set fire to Jim Cunningham's living room. I guess they were so low on money that they actually took the set for Donnie's psychiatrist's office, Dr. Thurman's office, and redressed it with a giant portrait of Patrick Swayze's character in the middle just to make it look like his living room. And then they just, just burned it all. Burned it all on a back lot. A cathartic end to Richard Kelly's first feature film. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made, and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bizarrely enough, considering the, the stature of this film, I guess, everyone passed on it. Uh, it got its premiere at Sundance, I should say, in 2001, at which point every major distributor yeah. passed on it. Uh, Richard Kelly told No Film School, no one knew what to do with it. The knock against this movie coming out of Sundance was that it was impossible to market, unreleasable, or incoherent. It was unique, bizarre, and disturbing. Also, it was right after the Columbine Massacre. And in the movie, we have a teenage kid who fires a gun. That was not something that made people feel comfortable. Hmm. They were fearful that the movie would promote violence or suicide. He continued, There were a lot of people who backed out of the room completely after they screened the movie and were like, we don't want anything to do with this. So it left the festival with no distributor, which is not great. You don't want your movie that premieres at Sundance to do that. Uh, and they were looking at the real possibility that this thing would go straight to DVD or a premiere on Stars. <laughs> Cinemax was not available, <laughs> but they ended up getting a helping hand from Christopher Nolan. Memento had come out in March of 2001 and was a hit, despite being just as bizarre and disturbing as Donnie Darko. And Nolan loved Donnie Darko so much that he convinced the team that distributed Memento to put Donnie Darko into theaters in October of 2001. And maybe also a lift from Drew Barrymore. Uh, who might have also put some of her own, more of her own money into this. Man. Really, truly the angel of this film. We owe her so much. <laughs> so, that premiere date you might have just perked your ears up at. It was, in fact, in October 2001. And uh, for a, a trailer that literally features an airplane engine crashing through the roof of a building, this was not the kind of thing a nation wanted to turn its healing eyes to mere weeks after 9-11. There was even a minor kerfuffle, brouhaha, if you will. <laughs> about the so-called Arabic-style font that was used in the title sequence, which was subsequently changed for posters going forward, from the uh, Identify This Font subreddit. Uh, that could be either Broader Buns Calligrapher or Flat Brush typeface, or possibly Palatino. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, between this and the Columbine comparisons, Donnie Darko was controversial upon its release, to say the very least. Coupled with the fact that it was released in, like, 50-something theaters across the country flopped, made a hair over $500,000 from its theatrical release against its $4.5 million budget. Even the premiere at Hollywood's Egyptian theater was a bit of a sad trombone. There was not even an open bar. Man, when your premiere has a cash bar, that is rough. Cold. Drew invited Charlie's Angels co-star Cameron Diaz, who showed up, though, so they got that going for him. And wasn't she in uh, The Box or South and Tales? Oh, yeah, you're right. She's, She's in, in another the Box Kelly later. Movie. Yeah. But, you know, the movie did start to pick up momentum. It uh, became popular on the midnight movie circuit, especially like New York's Pioneer Theater. Um, it also became a big success when it was released a little later in 
2002 in the UK, which fueled the aforementioned popularity of Gary Jewell's cover of Mad World, uh, Richard Kelly joked that the soundtrack, which is heavy on sounds of the British new wave, uh, might have helped it resonate a little bit better. Or, as he joked, maybe British people are just smarter. I have a whole thing about Christopher Nolan thinking that Americans are like dumb idiots. That's why like all the like big twists in his movies are so like heavy handed and flat footed. <laughs> He's like, eh, they don't really get it over there. But the biggest role in the film's late blooming success was the DVD sales. It became a cult movie across college dorm rooms and ultimately sold upwards of 10 million in home release, which more than made up for that atrocious box office. I can't. Half a million dollars is uh, incredibly bad. Yeah, I mean, I think that big factor in its uh, DVD sales was just its rewatchability. I mean, like I said, I first saw it at my friend's house and had my mind completely blown and then immediately went out and bought it so I could watch it at home again and try to figure it all out. I'm sure that that was probably an experience with a lot of people, too. Yeah, I mean, that was ours. I, I mentioned a bunch of those kids I went to college with while grew up outside of Richmond in Midlothian. So, yeah, this movie got a lot of mileage in college. Yeah. And this brings us to a section of the show that I like to call... What the hell does this movie mean? The short answer, no one knows. <laughs> At the film's rap party, both Jake Gyllenhaal and Seth Rogen confessed to each other that they had no idea what this movie was about. <laughs> During its 15th anniversary, Jake Gyllenhaal gave an interview to Entertainment Tonight, calling Donnie Darko, quote, an interesting story about growing up. And that's about as close as he gets to any sort of definition. Roger Ebert, who I believe knows everything or knew everything, said that even if he could tell folks what Donnie Darko was about, he wasn't confident that he would be right. <laughs> and even Richard <laughs> Kelly, who wrote and directed this, doesn't know exactly whether the movie depicts Donnie's dreams or if it takes place in an alternate plane of existence. He said, quote, I think that ultimately both of these things could be true. I try not to focus on fan theories, though, because I have my own. There's so much going on in this movie and so many Easter eggs hidden in it. A lot are kind of staring you in the face, but you don't realize what you're looking at. Things that people probably still haven't figured out that maybe I've figured out. I've lived with it now for 20 years, and I'm trying to constantly look at it with fresh eyes, but also as an analyst, kind of like my dad, who was a scientist, NASA scientist, like we talked about earlier. The fact that the writer-director isn't exactly clear on what this movie is about should really let the rest of us off the hook. Uh, Kelly released a director's cut version of the movie in 2004 with an additional 21 minutes added, as well as pages from the fictional book that Donnie reads in the movie, The Philosophy of Time Travel, supposedly written by the elderly woman in the film nicknamed Grandma Death, the woman who crosses the street every day to check her mailbox to see if anything came. And these added scenes hint at Donnie's telekinetic powers and suggest that he's destined to save humanity. Some feel that this extra footage adds some clarity to the more confusing scenes in the movie. Others don't. Kelly also expanded the world of the film into an interactive website that features all sorts of additional reading, including full versions of this fictitious philosophy of time travel book. And... All this kind of extra uh, homework has fascinated some fans and also annoyed others who basically argue that you shouldn't have to do homework to fully comprehend the director's vision. And the writer Andy Crump wrote an article for Inverse last year called 20 Years Ago, Donnie Darko Ruined Sci-Fi with One Tedious Trick. And in this piece, he writes, released 20 years ago on October 26, 2001, Donnie Darko defined cinema for the generation coming up through high school and its release by mistaking obfuscation for depth. Now return to our current cinematic moment, 
The Rise of Skywalker, the embarrassing capstone of J.J. Abrams' Star Wars sequel trilogy, which demands that its viewers read Ray Carlson's novelization to learn how Emperor Palpatine, last seen plunging down a reactor shaft in Return of the Jedi, somehow survived to serve as the antagonist anew. Meanwhile, it's become impossible to watch the latest Marvel What's It without revisiting half a dozen movies and now a six-hour miniseries beforehand. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that necessarily... Mm. Yeah, I guess he's right. There's a there is a line in Rise of Skywalker where Oscar Isaac's character literally says, "Somehow Palpatine has returned." So I don't think that was always planned that it would be revealed in a novelization. I think it was like they didn't have any idea as they were shooting it, and then made the. It was like J.J. Abrams called the guy writing the book and was like, "You gotta, buddy, you gotta help me out of this one." <laughs> but. Now we must arrive at Heigl's Fan Theory Corner. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm so excited for this. This is I, I haven't read any. This is all a surprise to me, so I'm extremely excited what you're about to share. Richard Kelly has advised people against going too deep on Donnie Darko. He told Vice, I try not to go down the internet rabbit hole, hey on anything too much because I don't think that's healthy. The internet can consume us all. That's rich of him. He launched a website to go along with this film. But here we go. Let's run down the theories. Whew. Okay. The classic, Donnie was dead the whole time, which is sort of nah. the plot of the aforementioned Jacob's Ladder and Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, a uh, famous short story, spoiler alert, for decades-old pieces of media famous <laughs> for their twists. The idea there is that Donnie dies at the beginning of the movie, and the entire plot is him either living as a sort of ghost or in his like dying moments seeing all of the events of the film unfold uh, and using the God's channel or the, which are the liquid spear kind of things to experience what his life might have been like before he ultimately accepts his own fate and moves on. Hmm. Number two, Donnie is stuck in a time loop like Groundhog Day and will continue to experience the same 28 days over and over again. Horrifying. Wow. Donnie is a schizophrenic and the entire movie is a manifestation of his mental illness. That's interesting. I saw, and I, I wish I could remember where I read this, but I, I read somebody talking about how this movie was really an incredibly apt description of mental illness. Said, the world is wrong, and only Donnie can fix it. He's yeah. alone with the weight of the literal world on his shoulders. Time is running out. There's something wrong, and he has to fix it, but he doesn't know what it is, let alone how to change it. That's mental illness. That's exactly how it feels. That is from an article in Nerdist called... Does Donnie Darko's superpower hold up in 2021? My personal favorite one is that Donnie Darko is Jesus, um, mm. much like Cool Hand Luke and the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh. <laughs> he sacrifices himself for the good of the world. And there are a couple aspects to this that actually lend credence to this theory. There's the fact that Richard Kelly name dropped The Last Temptation of Christ in one of those interviews, as we covered earlier. It's on the marquee under uh, under the evil dead. Yeah. And that, oh yeah, right. I didn't even think of that when you said it earlier. Uh, that film, also spoilers for decades-old piece of media, famous for its <laughs> twist. It has this whole scene that was very controversial about Jesus actually getting down off the cross and choosing to marry Mary Magdalene and have kids and live the rest of his life out. And then that is revealed to have been just a vision that he had while on the cross. And this also ties into the whole Easter theme with Frank. And in this theory... Frank is God because he is pushing Donnie to fulfill his destiny as the sacrificial lamb. And there's this line of evidence about there that people pointed to it. Donnie asks Noah Wiley's character if you can find portals in the real world. 
And Noah Wiley's character says, highly unlikely, that would take an act of God. And then just a few scenes later, Frank opens a portal in the movie theater. Uh, there is the classic theory, it was all a dream, to which I say, uh, Donnie. No, there's another theory. Donnie, is it, I think this is the closest to what Kelly may have actually been getting at. Because I saw this on Reddit a couple times and people really seem to go to bat for it. Donnie is a cautionary avatar created in a tangent universe who has to die in order to restore order to ours. And the guy outlining this on Reddit pinned that to the Roberta Sparrow book, which you can actually read chunks of. I'm paraphrasing here. A grandma death, the grandma death book, the yes. philosophy of time travel. Yes. Uh, when things start to stray too far from the true path of the universe, or I guess the correct path of ours, then a tangent universe is created. This is brought about by an object described as Roberta Sparrow as the artifact, which in Donnie Darko is the plane engine, which draws in the, quote, living character Donnie to find out its origin and once he finds out the origin to act on it and reunite the universes or kill the tangent one or whatever other aspects that are drawn from that book there's a term called the manipulated living who are people that the living character can manipulate or use interact with or whatever uh that's Gretchen whose role is to bring Donnie to the point where he has to return to this universe Jenna Malone's character so and then the manipulated dead is also a thing and that's Frank who dies in the tangent universe and now figures into Donnie's path to reunite the universes and that is supposedly why Donnie writes the phrase he made me do it he's not referring to Jim Cunningham as some people have said he's referring to Frank uh Donnie is Neo from the Matrix <laughs> <laughs> now, All right. uh, Frank Bring is Morpheus it. Grandma Death is a sentient program Like the Oracle And Gretchen is Trinity <laughs> <laughs> Anything? Anything there? Um, this isn't really a theory But it's uh, it's funny It's you know the weather on the eights As I'm calling it <laughs> The movie takes place in 1988 Frank tells Donnie the world will end in 28 days 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds And if you add those numbers The sum is 88 when Samantha asks when she can have kids, Donnie says, not until eighth grade. Donnie mentions to his therapist his dog died when he was eight. Donnie jokes about the DeLorean and Back to the Future, the time travel powers of which, you'll remember, kick in at 88 miles per hour, the point at which you will see some serious <laughs> According to the television reporter, the fire at Jim Cunningham's house was extinguished sometime after eight o'clock. The climax of Donnie Darko occurs one week before the 1988 presidential election which saw George Bush elected on November 8th, 1988. Movie was shot in 28 days. There are 28 scenes in the director's cut of this movie. None of this actually explains what's going on in the movie. It's just a recurring Easter egg. The film is an elaborate... Here's another one. The film is an elaborate parable against drunk driving, hence the bit about Mothers Against Drunk Driving, the organization that sponsors the festival in the film. And Frank was, since he was driving out to get more beer, presumably drunk when he kills Gretchen. Wow. lot to chew on, folks. Good Lord. Uh, and now, as this episode begins to edge into the two-hour mark, here's Richard Kelly debunking these theories in NME in 2016. For the theory that Donnie was dead all along, quote, I don't have an answer to that question. I think the film argues that life and death can perhaps coexist, that time is not necessarily a purely linear thing. Okay. <laughs> was Donnie hallucinating? I don't have an absolute definition of hallucination. I believe everything in the film is real to a certain extent, but what is the nature of reality? 
<laughs> I, I, th- this guy really starts to piss me off yeah. at a certain point with this. It's like, dude, just say you were baked. Like, honestly, <laughs> people are putting in so much work here to, and you're just like, I don't know, man, like what even is real? I had a guy in a filmmaking class who uh, looked up after uh, everybody taking a beat after reading somebody's script and said, uh, seemingly propose of nothing. Do you dream of infinity? Well, it gets even worse. Uh, For the theory (laughs) that the whole movie was a dream, Richard Keller responded by saying, life could be a dream. (laughs) I hate that. That annoys me. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. The theory that the film was essentially an elaborate lesson against drunk driving. I'm very against drunk driving, and if people want to take it that way, I hope people call an Uber. All right. Sure. Hmm, yeah. A not great theory gets a not great answer, but okay. <laughs> and finally, do Frank and the jet engine exist in a tangent universe? Well, the tangent universe is certainly the first chapter from the prologue of the philosophy of time travel, so I believe there's a lot more to that book than meets the eye, <laughs> Richard Kelly says. I tend to believe that Roberto Sparrow was on to something. Hmm. And then in 2021, Richard Kelly finally gets a little more specific for the 20th anniversary of this movie. (laughs) He told Rolling Stone, I look at the events in the film as a story of divine and supernatural intervention, where a select group of characters happen to be living in the proximity of the science fiction event. I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a lot more to the story if you look at it both through a prism of science fiction and the logical reaction to the events presented, he continued. That is not to take away any interpretation that people have of the film, which I think is valid because the way it's engineered, you can have any interpretation you want of the first 90% of the movie. But then he finished, in my mind, the last 10% of the movie is the reality of what carries forward. I didn't realize the divine, I mean, I guess the divine intervention thing, there's another Easter egg. The the making of is called Deus Ex, right? Yeah, Deus Ex Machina, uh, yeah. Deus Ex Machina, meaning God from the machine. Isn't that a Mm. screenwriting term? Or is it just literary in general? I think it's literary in general, meaning like the plot's basically resolved by God swooping in and giving you an unsuspected conclusion that solves all your problems. Yeah. Pucci went back to his home planet. Uh, my personal favorite comes from the Hard Times uh, satire site. The headline, these Donnie Darko fan theories won't change the fact that you're 30 and need to get your shit together. <laughs> Amazing. Um all this doesn't get into the unauthorized sequel of Donnie Darko, which I had no idea existed until researching it for this podcast. And there's a good reason I had no idea about this. Richard Kelly basically disowned it and had nothing to do with it. I've never seen it. He told NME in the fan theory interview from up top from 2016, adding, it was horribly violating. It was incredibly painful to think about what they were doing. It made me very angry, filled with rage. <laughs> Tell us what filled Richard Kelly with rage, Jordan. Well, it came out in 2009, and it was called S. Darko. Which, according to the Wikipedia page, is pronounced S. Dot Darko. I'm like not phonetic- doing that. <laughs> I'm not. Just out of spite and out of allegiance to Richard Kelly, who has also pissed me off multiple times in this episode. I'm not calling it by that ridiculous way. Um, anyway, this followed Donnie Darko's younger sister, Samantha, the dancer in the Sparkle Motion dance troupe. The original asterisk, DeVay Chase, was actually uh, actually showed up for this movie, but she was basically the only tidy, the original Donnie Darko. The plot is as follows. Samantha Darko is now a teenager and embarking on a road trip with her friend Corey. They end up in a small town in Utah, which is filled with various uh, freaky people. Uh, that damn bunny comes back. <laughs> There's elements of time travel and the familiar tropes of the original movie, but... 
lacked the heart, lacked Richard Kelly's pathological chutzpah. Je ne sais quoi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the whole movie, uh, gigantic miss. Richard Kelly likened it to a fairy tale as opposed to his original film, which he described as more like a graphic novel. And S. Darko was not well received, especially when word got out that the mind behind the original, Richard Kelly, was not happy about this, which led to something of a backlash from Donnie Darko's fervent fan base. And you got to feel bad for the director of S. Darko, a guy by the name of Chris Fisher, because he basically took this project on because he was a huge fan of the original, which just serves as yet another lesson to Hollywood. Just leave stuff alone just please yeah he's uh <clears throat> since gone on to do a lot of network television oh, that's, yeah that's funny how in 2022 that's code for flop be it put out to pasture <laughs> yeah, I know, right? yeah oh but what about the possibility of a good sequel with richard kelly and the original team back on board uh a little dicey <laughs> Back in 2005, Richard Kelly suggested that he would never make a sequel because it would destroy the integrity of his original movie. That was before a sequel was released <laughs> and didn't destroy the integrity of his original movie. But uh, he's since reversed his stance on making a sequel, but uh, for once is cowed by a more practical concern. He doesn't own the rights to Donnie Darko. Telling no film school, I had to relinquish them when I was 24 years old when I signed a deal to get to direct the film. It would be very upsetting to see someone else remake or reboot this film. I don't want anything to happen that's going to be done for the wrong reasons or outside my control. That's why I have to keep an open mind to doing something new with it that's artful and fresh and not allowing conformity to win. I'm not the world's biggest film buff, but I kind of lost track of Richard Kelly after Don Darko <laughs> Fever blew over in the mid-2000s, and sounds like that's kind of a good thing. Uh, his follow-up was 2006's Southland Tales, which to me seems packed with people who seemed big at the time because they were still coasting on their 90s fame, and uh, this movie was kind of where their career inertia ran out. Uh, Sean William Scott, a.k.a. Stifler, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Mandy Moore, Justin Timberlake, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson with music by Moby. <laughs> Give me a thousand guesses, and I never would have imagined that Richard Kelly's follow-up to Donnie Darko would have starred The Rock. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> strange. Uh, and what's even stranger is the fact that he's the biggest star out of all of them at this point, 20 years yeah, later. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, even JT has dropped out. Uh, I have not seen this movie. I've never heard of this movie before today. Wikipedia tells me that it's a satire on the military industrial complex and the infotainment industry. Hey, <laughs> I just can't um, believe I got to show you the video of Justin Timberlake doing the killer's lip sync. That movie yes. grinds to a halt so that Justin Timberlake can lip sync another band's song directly into the camera. I mean, maybe he thought it would work like the Hell Over Heels montage would. <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, dude. Uh, <laughs> in So you've seen this. Once. <laughs> that was enough. Any, any, it, anything you care to share? I It is. I mean, I no, no. Okay. That's that's what I remember the most about it. I think the, admirably The Rock is actually like playing against type. Like he's like very, oh, he's wow. actually like supposed to be like very neurotic and weird in the movie. Um, but yeah, man, just a misbegotten film. I don't even remember what it was trying to get across. Of course it has its defenders. It's the internet. The certainty that someone will come out of the woodwork to defend something is one, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I know we're crunched for time, but I want to get into a little bit of this because in classic Richard Kelly fashion, Southland Tales was not a simple popcorn flick. 
It was initially planned to be a nine-part interactive experience with the first six parts published in six separate 100-page graphic novels. And then the film itself would comprise the final three parts of this, quote, experience. And much like Donnie Darko, there was a website launch to intertwine the graphic novels with the film itself. However, Richard Kelly was writing these graphic novels in the middle of directing the movie, which he said, quote, pushed me to the edge of my own sanity. And ultimately, he decided to cut it down to just three graphic novels instead of six. And the film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2006. You know, Richard Kelly's big follow-up to Donnie Darko. It was a lot of expectation. It was just eviscerated. Uh, Salon.com critic Andrew O'Hare called the con cut, quote, about the biggest, ugliest mess I've ever seen. Uh, Jason Solomons for The Observer wrote, Southland Tales was so bad it made me wonder if Kelly had ever met a human being. An incredible diss. (laughs) Adding that it, quote, may be one of the worst films ever presented in the con competition. And I guess after this debacle, Richard Kelly slashed about 25 minutes of footage, somehow got extra cash from Sony to uh, add some more effects to the movie. Kept somehow, the Justin Timberlake scene. <laughs> yes. Um, film was an enormous bomb, pulled in just shy of $375,000. $375,000, less than Donnie Darko. Against the budget of? $17 million. Uh, and unfortunately, unlike Donnie Darko, it did not make up the difference on home video. Uh, after that, Richard Kelly did The Box, which is an adaptation of the Richard Matheson short story, Button Button, which I think had been previously done as an 80s era Twilight Zone episode. Hmm. And since then, he's produced the extremely dark Bobcat Goldthwait movie starring Robin Williams called World's Greatest Dad. This actually isn't that bad. And the Tucker Max book adaptation of I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. Dude, you're in Hollywood hell when they start sending you that kind of shit. Good Lord. Currently on IMDb, a project he's written and directed uh, and is producing. <laughs> oh, It's called Corpus Christi. It's listed in pre-pro. I looked it up. The plot just says an Iraq war veteran teams up with a wealthy business owner in Texas. And it's in pre-pro. Anyway, they gave him enough money to do whatever the hell that is. <laughs> well, we touched on this in the intro, but stripping away all of this talk of the Stephen Hawking style theoretical physics and time travel... Donnie Darko, really, if you get down to it, it's a movie about growing up rabbits. and adolescence. Oh, and rabbits. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Jake Gyllenhaal described it years later when asked for some sort of explanation about Donnie Darko. He told The Guardian in 2016, it wasn't a conventional adulthood film in the American Pie way. Donnie's psychological journey is what's important. That's why it's had this lasting power. Anything psychological is a slower but ultimately longer burn. We talked about Patrick Swayze's self-help guru selling a cure for general malaise by breaking everything down to a binary, fear and love. And that's what Donnie fights against in this movie, because that binary is basically childlike thinking. When you become a teenager, everything stops being so black and white, and you enter a world of gray, and life becomes a lot more ambiguous, and therefore a lot more difficult to navigate. And there are no easy answers. Richard Kelly's talked a lot about the whole exercise when Donnie's asked to put solutions to complex emotional problems on this goofy fear and love timeline in school. And remember, this was something that Richard Kelly said he was, in some form or another, actually taught in his school. So this clearly had some emotional meaning for him. And Richard Kelly says, it has to do with this idea of conformity. 
part of being an artist is fighting against conformity, breaking convention, painting outside the lines. I think a lot of the system in place, whether it's the educational system or a system of Hollywood and its filmmaking, is all about restrictions and labels, genre classifications, trying to emulate past success, sequels, remakes, reboots. The spirit of the character of Donnie Darko is about fighting against that conformity. And uh, it's difficult to know where to leave off in an episode like this, but I think that's as good a parting thought as any. I hope that when this podcast comes to an end, I can breathe a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to. That's in the letter he writes to Roberta Sparrow. Where's your damn AIM status spotting poser? (laughs) (laughs) I also had gone with uh, go home and tell your parents that everything's going to be okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, there you go. That felt a little yeah. too fraught. I was going to get a little verklempt. Oh, I, I think it's a nice thing to tell our dear sweet parents. They deserve <laughs> it. Call your parents. Tell things are good. Even tell them everything's going to be okay. Feel better. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> I'm surprised we got through that as quickly as we did. This was, uh, I know. Uh, uh, anyway, folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Darko. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Jordan Rottock. And I'm Alex Heigl. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.